days start out really interesting. Uh, I always love getting cards from the kids, and I've got a whole collection in the office, and some are crayoned in, some are markered, and some are pencil. But uh, I got one this morning, and it kind of touched my heart. But uh, I know you probably can't see this, but uh, in the center of this is a hill with three crosses, and off to the side is a palace with uh, the, the lookout towers and there's a mighty king standing in the middle of it and it's an earthly castle and over that it's got a uh, the words written false god and then over this one over the cross the three crosses it's got a little arrow pointing toward the center and it says true god and I thought you got it that's that's the gospel so thank you Jonah for sharing that with me this morning it blessed my heart and blessed my heart when the kids do that uh, Always, anyway. So, uh, you can turn with me to Luke 24, but uh, I want to read that part. But I want to just share some verses this morning. Uh, there are many in regards to the resurrection, uh, certainly to Holy Week, uh, and we could probably exhaust ourselves going through all the texts dealing with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is central. <laughs> it is central to the Christian faith. Uh, I was talking to someone this week and uh, they were indicating to me that uh, someone whom they had believed to be a Christian and professing Christian for many years um, in conversation or in discussion um, indicated to him that he did not uh, believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that it was a spiritual uh, resurrection, but it was, not, it was not the body of Christ resurrected uh, and glorified. And I thought we were speaking together about that incident. And I thought to myself, that is so central to Christianity. I mean, if you get rid of that, if it is not a bodily resurrection, then Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians that our faith is in vain. Uh, you are yet in your sins. And that's how central the resurrection is to that. So we come from throughout this week, the Holy Week, to finally on resurrection morning. So we begin in chapter 24 of Luke. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothes clothing such as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? That's a sermon title right there. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and jo Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other woman, women and them, with them were telling these things to the apostles. But the words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen, wrap, linen wrappings only and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. 
And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and didn't find his body. And they came saying that he had also seen a vision of angels, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going further, but they urged him saying, stay with us for it's getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered there the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen, risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them and the breaking of bread. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law and the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious day that we remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we live the benefits of that resurrection every single day as believers. 
And Father, we have the Spirit dwelling within us and we have the affirmation that we belong to you. We cry by the Spirit, Abba, Father. And these things were brought about in Christ. Father, I pray this morning that you might do as Jesus did to these disciples on the road, that you might explain by your spirit the scriptures and in the explaining, Father, that our hearts might burn within us as well. So it is your word, it is your glory, it is your person. Manifest that to us here today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I don't know how the gentleman that they were speaking of could hold <clears throat> to the order or to the belief that he had given those particular texts. I just want to share some text with you as part of researching this week and uh, really coming to the conclusion that it was completely overwhelming and could not be covered, uh, I'm sure, in a sermon. But I want to share with you several verses. If you want to, you can turn with me to 1 Peter 1. And I'll be sharing from that passage, chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, or really 1 through 4. But I want to read some verses for you before we get there and think about some of those things. But my, my main exhortation this morning will come from 1 Peter. But I put these kind of in an order. You could change the order, certainly. But I began with John 14, 6, where Jesus, remember, uh, says to Thomas, or Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And so Jesus says something very profound before he goes to the cross, and he says to him, I am the way. He goes on to say, I am the truth, and I am the life. Uh, you can divide those words up in a lot of ways and try to think about what they mean, but generally it seemed to me that by way he means I am the means, I am the instrument, I am the avenue by which you may come to the Father. And the, in, the implication is I am the exclusive way. It is not by way of the law. It is not by, uh, on your obedience to the law, it's not by way of religion or denomination or self-discipline or self-reformation. There is no other way. I am the way. I am the singular instrument and avenue to bring you to the Father. If you try to go around me, you won't arrive at the Father. You, you might arrive at some grasp of some biblical principles and some objectively true realities, but you will not come to the Father. You will not come to the Father but through the Son. He is the only avenue or means by which you and I can be brought to the Father. He says as well, I am the truth. I thought about that as the ultimate objective reality in the universe. Uh, everything that is true, if it is so, must find its correlation somehow, not only in the words of Christ, but in the very being of Christ. Jesus is not saying, I know the truth. <laughs> He's not saying, I am the way I tell you the truth. He is saying, I am the truth. Uh, it is, it is, the truth is saying something essential about his being. There is no error, there is no lie, there is no deception in his person. I am the truth. And your, your truth is only truth insofar as it finds its agreement in, in Christ and the truth who God is. I am the way, I am the truth. 
and I am the life. John, in the beginning of his gospel, says there that Jesus was that light and a life, and in him was the uh, Jesus was the light, and in him was the light, and the light was the life of men. So Jesus is ultimately and centrally life. In fact, there was no other life outside Father, Son, and Spirit in the Godhead before creation. There was not some life that they came in and manipulated and worked to bring about life in that environment. They, he is life. And all life has its root in Him and His creating life. So all life is contingent life except His life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is who's on the cross, by the way. That's why I wanted to read that verse, because that's who's rising from the dead, by the way, is the way, the truth, and the life. And if he's dying on the cross, it must be, it must be essential in some way of fulfilling himself as the way and opening your eyes to him as the truth and the life. And so it's connected. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says this about Christ, Paul speaking of him, he says of Jesus that he was delivered over because of our sin or our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The King James Version used the word for there, for and because can be interchangeable, but they are both crucial. Now, there's a sense in which the resurrection is necessary because it is the, it is the global universal evidence that what was taking place on the cross was made was effectual or it, it had the effect it really did bring about justification he says there plainly he was delivered over because of the cause of his delivering over delivering Christ over was sin he died for the forgiveness of sins and for justification but then he says that he was raised because of our justification, not to accomplish it so much as it is a result of our having been justified. The book of Acts says that having died, the death could no longer hold him and though, and though he rose from the dead. So the penalty of sin was paid by Christ. He was delivered over for that. And having paid the price, he was raised. But he says, for or because of our justification. So there are some folks who think that the resurrection then wasn't necessarily, uh, wasn't really necessary other than a witness that the sacrifice was good. That's wrong. That's wrong. And I'll show you why in a minute, but I'll give you a heads up on that. Because in our death with Christ, we are made joined to Christ. And we are made to be united with Christ. And we go down into the grave with Christ. Well, if he doesn't rise from the dead, we're still in the grave with Christ. He was raised for our justification. Yes, we are justified in the sacrificial atonement, the penal substitution of Christ. We are justified there. But if, but if he doesn't rise from the dead, then there's no living with Christ in the new life, you see. And so they're connected. Don't separate the two. Here's another one, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us to get alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's that union. And while you were yet dead in your sins, you were made alive being joined to Christ. 
and wherein you went down into death with Christ and through the resurrection were raised up to new life. That's why this Sunday and our recognition of the resurrection is so critical. It's so critical. It's not just to let us know that the justification worked. It is the rest of our lives. It is from the point of our justification and having been joined to Christ, we are forever with Him. If He isn't risen from the dead, then we have no, we have no experience of having been joined to Christ. But now we have new life in Christ and we shall never be separated from Him again because He never dies again. That's what the resurrection should testify to the Christians. In Romans chapter 6, Verse 5 and 8, which I always preach from in baptisms or speak from in baptism. For we have become, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Again, our union with Christ. Union down into death, union up from death, union today. We're going to celebrate or observe the Lord's Supper at the close of the service, which is a testimony of our becoming partakers of the body and blood of Christ. Those who have believed in Christ have been made part of Him and have His experience and the inheritance comes through Him and all those blessings are in that union with Christ. You hear me quoted all the time that the Scriptures say, all the promises of God are in Him, yes. All those promises come to you in Him. Stand outside of Christ and claim the promises of God to be yes for you and you're deceived. They're not for you. They're not, they're not issued to you. They're not assured to you other than in Christ. So that union is critical. Again in Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 11, Paul speaks to believers, However, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Again, union. Again, having been united with Christ, these things flow to us as believers. Somebody, by the way, this week was talking about uh, why Easter was not a federal holiday and all those things. And, and I thought to myself, I don't care. I don't care that if a decree comes down from the highest levels of government, I'll just hold up Jonah's picture. Here's you. Here's him. I'm in him, not in you. So it doesn't matter to me if it's not a federal holiday or even if we don't get the day off. The reality of it is just the same. Just the same. I love 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Paul writes this, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. If it's principally impossible, then Christ hasn't been raised. If there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead, then Christ being a man is not resurrected. 
It's impossible. That's what he's getting at. And he says to them, if that's true, if Christ has not been raised, then we're preaching in vain. And also your faith is in vain. In other words, if I'm preaching and you come to faith through the preaching of the word through me, not only is my preaching false and in vain, but your faith having listened to my preaching is vain too. The word means really, literally futility. It is an act of futility for me to do what I'm doing now if Christ has not risen from the dead. And it is an act of futility on your part to believe anything I'm saying right now if Christ is not risen from the dead what he's making his case here in fact he goes further and says moreover we who have been preaching have been found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised here's another thing your faith is worthless you're still in your sins now Still in your sins. Also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have gone away believing in Christ, if he's not been raised, then that's, they've perished. He goes on to finish that. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Another one here. Romans 1, 1 through 4, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. I think what he means there is not that his rising from the dead made him the son of God. It was the declaration that he was indeed the son of God. In other words, nobody else is rising from the dead. <laughs> Lazarus was brought back from the dead, yes, but Lazarus came back to the, his fleshly life and Lazarus had to go through death again. Jesus went down into death and paid the penalty for sin and rose up from the dead. Only the son of God could have accomplished that because you would have to have been sinless in your own person to be able to do it for you would never have been able to pay the debt for sin. I've said it over and over. The reason hell is eternal and it is an eternal dying is because you will never reach a, a point in eternity in hell to where your suffering will have, will have paid the debt that you owe if you take that debt upon yourself. Because you've sinned against an infinitely holy God. And so your sin is infinitely egregious and horrible. And there will never be an exhaustion of the debt you owe that holy God because you don't have the capacity to pay that debt. Only Jesus does. And that's what I think Paul means in that passage. Declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Again, the resurrection is critical. That's, a, that's the declaration that he is indeed who he says he is. To, it's a testimony, as it were, to all humanity. It's not a testimony to Christ. He knew who he was. It's not a testimony to Father and Holy Spirit as well. He is God. It is a testimony to the world. In some ways, even to unbelievers. In Acts 2, 24 Peter preaching here, Men of Israel, listen to these words. I want you to listen, by, listen to the things that are happening in this text. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, 
A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. So God's attestation to Christ was the miracles, wonders, and signs. You saw them. God bore testimony to you through these events of this man. And he says, God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Then he says, this man, whom he's speaking of here, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So the delivering over of Christ was not us. Who shall go into heaven to bring Christ down? Or who shall go into the earth to bring him up? We can't do that. He was brought into this place to be our deliverer by God the Father. He sends him, he ordains and foreordains and predestines them to come into the world as our deliverer. And then he says to them, here's your your guilt and my guilt. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. The Jews didn't do it themselves. They weren't allowed to do it. But they, they pressed for it and turned him over into the godless hands of the Roman Empire. And they, they did the dirty work as it were. But he says, you did it. God preordained it from eternity and foreknowledge, predestined to send the deliverer into the world. And by your hands, he would fulfill the mission that God had ordained for him to do. Are you guilty? Yes, they were guilty. Am I, are you and I guilty? Yes, we are guilty. Even if it's predestined and ordained according to the foreknowledge of God. He says, you nailed him to... the by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But then verse 24 says this, but God raised him up again. Do all you can, but the one who predestined and forward knew his coming into the world as the deliverer subjected him to your wicked hands and you fulfilled the lust of your own hearts in putting him to death. And the God who sent him overcame your wickedness by raising him from the dead and in the process redeemed you, purchased you in the process. I would say God was in charge. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. This is the passage I mentioned. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That's what we're celebrating today. That event. One more here. 1 Corinthians 15, 15 through 57. Paul cries out here, Oh, death. We sang it a moment ago. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And he tells us, the sting of death is, is sin and the power of sin is the law. So the law empowers sin to have a sting that produces death. But thanks be to God, he writes, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's through Jesus Christ, he's saying through the cross and through the resurrection, he's taunting death. <laughs> Oh, death, where is your victory? You thought you won it. Wicked men conspired and put to death the Son of the God, and you, and you re- rejoiced in your victory. You thought you had won the victory, and now he's taunting death, as it were. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, you, you had a weapon. You had the law, and the law and men's inability to obey the law was a stinger of it. And you went around stinging men and, and, and pointing out to them that they could not fulfill the law, and you thought you had them conquered, and someone conquered you. And so he taunts them, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
So those are a few, but here's the one in 1 Peter that I want to think about briefly this morning. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read through verse, probably read through verse 9. Peter, an apostle to Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. So don't overlook the audience here. He's talking to a very specific people. You may or may not fall into a similar category this morning. If you've come to know Jesus Christ, you're in the category. To these, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. If I could just point out a couple of things that really struck me in verse 3 and 4. Number one is this is a day that we ought to be bless, blessing God, praising God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But Paul, Peter says here, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just talked about your having been chosen. And he's going to go on to talk about this inheritance and how the, chose, the choice of you was manifested. And so all of this rests in the hands of a great and mighty God. And so he's saying, blessed be the God. That ought to be our heart's response this morning, especially on this first day of the week, that we remember that our Savior not only was crucified for sins, but was raised from the dead. That ought to be the heart's gratitude should be noticeable to us noticeable. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here it says this same God who according to his great mercy. So that's, that's what's motivating the God, the Father who reaches out, makes, makes accommodation as it were for our redemption. The one who delivers over the Son for sins and raises him up for our justification. The same God at work there in regards toward you is working from his great mercy. Uh, I've been fascinated for decades now, or at least two decades, by the, the unbelievable minutia and magnitude of the mercies of God every day. Every day. And I'm convinced that every one of those flows from the merit of Christ's suffering. I'm convinced that He purchased that mercy for me through the cross. God, for His great mercy, sent my Redeemer. 
and united me to Christ and then raised me up in Christ so that the mercies that would flow into my life in sanctification and ultimately glorification would flow through Christ who himself said, I am the way. So every mercy extended to you this morning comes from a great God. And it's ministered to you through a great Savior, Christ Jesus, who is risen today. Every one of them. Do you know that you were a beneficiary of numerous, a multitude of mercies on the way to this service today? I came down the road and, uh, this morning for the sunrise service and I told somebody I got up and my furnace was making all sorts of noises and, and so the inducer fan motor bearing was going out and I didn't know if we were going to have heat when I got home and I get in the car and I crank up the car and back up, get, don't even get out of the driveway and bing, 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 my engine light says check engine comes on. So now I've got a furnace falling apart and an engine light on my car. I'm not sure I'll even make it here to the church already thinking in my mind, who can I call to come and pick me up this morning? But even in that, the mercies were manifold. I was conscious to drive. My heart was beating as I made my way to the car. My mind was working as I meditated upon the verses and the text this morning. My heart was moved by the realization once again of a risen Savior. I was moved by the mercy of God and salvation. And it carried me all the way to church. And I'm standing here this morning as a result of manifold mercies. And you're listening as a beneficiary of the many that he's extended to you as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, here's the most powerful one, has caused us to be born again. Now, here's the mercy manifest. He has caused us, according to His great mercy, He has brought about your new birth. He has caused it. Not you. Did you respond to the cause? Yes, absolutely. That's part of His causing it. He created in us a response to His coming to us. And so He is the cause. That is a manifestation of the extraordinary mercy of God. You've heard me say this many times, but I heard a lot of gospel messages. I heard a lot of preaching when I was a kid. It used to scare me, especially some of those old country preachers, because I thought their heads was going to explode. And if I didn't know but one thing when I left, I knew one thing, I don't want to go to hell. I didn't necessarily know how not to go to hell, and I surely didn't know how to live a Christian life, but I sure didn't want to go to hell. But this great mercy is extended to us, and in that mercy He has caused me, having read the Word and having heard the Word and the Word seeking down in deep, the veil being removed and me seeing myself as sinful and absolutely without excuse or without any righteousness whatsoever and desiring Him in that moment. You said, Delaire, did you choose Christ? I, I said, absolutely I did. <laughs> I wasn't going to choose anything else at that moment, but what was the cause of that? My intellect? My own sinful depression, my own frustrations, none of that was the cause of that. Those things might have been instrumental in God ultimately bringing that, me to that place, but God was the cause of that. This is, this is what the resurrection is affirming. God was the cause of that. So we bless Him today. He caused us to be born again, a new birth. Remember in John's Gospel, He says, 
Nicodemus is wanting to know about the kingdom. And Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he can't see the kingdom. Uh, the, the implication is, Nicodemus, you're trying to find something that you are incapable of seeing. You're searching for something. And it may even be an honest search. But you have a serious problem, teacher of Israel. You can't see. <laughs> and you've got to be born again to even see it. And he goes further and say, not only to see it, it's not as though you're born again, you see it, and then you can say, well, I don't think I'll take it. He says, first of all, you've got to be born again to see it. And having seen it, you, you enter it having been born again is the same thing. The new birth not only shows us the kingdom, but also guarantees our entrance into it. In fact, you might say it is our entrance into it. God has caused this to happen. Blessed be God. It's what Peter's saying. It's what we're celebrating today, that we are celebrating the manifestation and the means by which God brings it to pass in each of our lives. A couple more. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Here's the instrument. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead, from the dead. So the resurrection is essential to that. It's not just a witness of it. It is that. But there, because of the union, it is essential and necessary to this. You can't be part of the kingdom if you stay dead. Having united to Christ, dying with Christ, and being raised up with Christ, whether you're a part of the kingdom because the king is in the kingdom and you're in the king. So, so that's, the, that's the new birth. He has caused this to be brought about in us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is further to obtain an inheritance. So he raised us up with Christ from the dead so that we might obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. I love the, I won't stay on this, but I love the description of this inheritance you have. It's imperishable. When I thought, that, seen that word, I thought about uh, stuff that's out of date. Uh, I'm, I'm really weird about that. If I pick up a quart of milk out of the refrigerator and it's one day out of the date, I go, I ain't drinking that. And I'm sure hope will give us, give me that. One or two days, it ain't going to hurt anything. Listen, this inheritance isn't perishable. There is no decay to it. You see, there's no deterioration. There will be no need to remodel it uh, a million years from now. It is imperishable. It, is, it has no expiration date on it. That's what he's purchased for you in Christ Jesus. An inheritance that's like that. Not only that. But it's undefiled. It's, it's not, there's no impurity in this at all. There is no defilement in it at all. And also it is ongoing. It will not fade away. It will not dwindle out towards the end. It will not reach some point to where it's almost exhausted. It won't just fade away. It will be renewed every day and every day for all of eternity. Because the kingdom, I think the inheritance is the glory of God himself. And it is infinite and inexhaustible. So it will never end. This is what we have in Christ. He speaks of those as well who are protected in verse 5 by the power of God through faith, which is their link for their union, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there is a coming of Christ as well. And he says to them, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Amen to that. But those are so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
not of you, <laughs> but of him at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome the salvation of your souls. That's our destiny. That's what Easter Sunday means. It's not, when I think about this, I'm not rebuking anybody. If you want to chase eggs for Easter, have at it. Uh, I told my grandkids the other week, we never did do much Easter egg hunting when I was a kid because I ate them all. My brother and sister say, wait a minute, we had 10 eggs. Where's the other five? And I'd be over there with egg on my mouth. I loved them boiled eggs. But when I think about this, it doesn't occur to me to celebrate it any other way but then to give praise to God. I mean, these are eternal things here. These are not temporal pretty spring day things. These are not American holiday things. These are things pertaining to life and death in its fullest measure in either way. And this one who took upon himself flesh, walked in obedience, perfect obedience, submitted himself to the torture of a cross and went down into the grave to take on himself the penalties and the wages of our sins and to pay the debt there and then to rise from the grave having united us with himself and guaranteeing now our sanctification and ultimate glorification. These are far too infinitely important matters to be disregarding with some easier thing to think about. So we gather this morning early to remember those. And we gather this morning here in this hour as well to remember that. And I, as I've shared, I want to share with us or us share in communion this morning. And to set up that, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the gentleman who will be serving, helping us serve, you can be making your way forward. Paul addressing some issues in regards to their gathering. They apparently, uh, my understanding is, would have these things called love feasts where the body of Christ would gather together and they would have meals together and then somewhere in the midst of that they would observe the Lord's Supper and there was some leak over and there was some, there was some self-centeredness happening there. Families would group up with one another and maybe somebody didn't have as much would be suffering. So Paul's kind of speaking to that issue in general. And he rebukes them in verse 20 of chapter 11. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one's hungry and another's drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat to drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So there's his rebuke. But here's the foundation of that as well, I think, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup... This is important. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats, drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And for this reason, many among you are weak, he says, and sick, and a number sleep or have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So I just want to share uh, this morning as we do this, I know on Easter we have visitors sometimes. Uh, so uh, visitors, we do practice here and have uh, many years what we call open communion. Uh, but if you're here and you're a visitor and you're from a church who practices closed communion, you're not doing that, you're free to let the elements pass you by. Uh, the other uh, is, is serious, uh, but it has to do with what Paul is saying here. He tells them, for as often as they eat that bread, we, they do proclaim the Lord's death. By his death, it means the, the death, <laughs> not just the death itself, but the nature of the death. What was the cause of the death? What were the effects of his death? So there are serious implications in what you're doing. So when you're taking the juice and you're taking the bread, you are making a proclamation. Look, Jesus died. You're pointing towards the death of the Christ. You're asking the world and everybody in this room to look at the death of Christ. And so the implication is, he goes further on to say that that means something to you. Therefore, he says, whoever eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let me just say that unworthy don't mean that you have uh, to be worthy doesn't mean that you have reached some level of perfection in your own individual lives. Uh, if you do, someone might better come down here and help distribute the elements because I've not reached perfection. But I think in regards to unworthily here, he means in a disregard, even for the believer, certainly if you're not a believer, you don't do this. <laughs> because this has not been a reality in your life. It is a symbolism that you don't know. And so you dare not tread underfoot the body and blood of Christ in an unbeliever's exercise. So if you're not a believer, uh, we pray that you will be someday, but as of yet, you are not, do not partake. If you are a believer and you have a profession of faith, but yet you have disregarded the death of Christ and its power in your own sanctification, and its power to produce in you an obedient heart and a desire to follow the Lord and to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. If, if you have disregarded that and it is not a serious thing for you to be following Christ and being obedient to Christ, then first and foremost, repent of that. But certainly do not embrace that attitude and partake of the elements because you are making a mockery of the very death by which these things were made available to you as a believer. And so that's, this is serious. And it's even, it's all the more serious when we celebrate it on the very day that we're celebrating Jesus rising from the dead. Because he's been in the grave through Holy Week and there has been, a, there has been an, an activity taking place there that, is, that ought to cause fear and trembling in us. And if we are participants of that and then hold up the bread and hold up the cup in a way that in our own hearts, we're disregarding that reality in every other realm of our lives. We're, we're making a mockery of the body and blood of Christ. And you're safer not to observe it in that case. In fact, Paul says, in fact, there were some of them who were observing it in that way. And they had become sick. 
Now, I thought about that. I said, did they realize that? Or had they just disregarded that, not taken it seriously, and they just go through the motions, and all of a sudden they stay sick all the time, or, or, they, or they or really get terminally ill, and some of them even died, but did they ever realize that your sickness might be rooted in your unworthy uh, proclamation of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Perhaps your irreverence in that, his disciplining hand in your life is your own body failing. And it might be a call for him, a call for you or a call for me to repent from that as well. So if you are a believer who is trusting in Christ and who is believing and trusting in his spirit and walking in obedience according to his word to the best of your ability according to where he has you in your sanctification and you have a repentant heart uh, I think you could observe of this worthily especially that because I think that produces a humility that makes you understand that what you're communicating here your union with Christ your death to sin and resurrection to new life all that is in Christ and you dare not make a mockery or make light of that union because everything, every hope you have is in that union. And we dare not make light of that. So that's our word of caution. So uh, gentlemen, if you'll make your way forward, who are going to serve and just take your seat there.